The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey guys, CrimeCon will be in Austin, Texas this year, and it's only a few months away. I'll be there on Podcast Row, and I really hope to see some of you there. If you haven't already, check out CrimeCon.com for more info or to buy passes. Use promo code MURDERISH20 for 10% off a standard badge. That's CrimeCon.com promo code MURDERISH20 for 10% off. Also, I want to warn you that this episode contains discussions about rape and bestiality. Please use discretion before listening. In the 1970s, a group of four teenagers set up camp in the Adirondack Mountains. Sadly, only three of them would make it out alive. A high-profile manhunt for the killer ensued and eventually led to a trial, during which stunning confessions were revealed in front of a shocked courtroom. Those courtroom confessions would lead to a debate amongst legal professionals that still exist today. The ongoing legal debate begs the question, is there ever a time when an attorney should divulge information they received from their client despite attorney-client privilege? This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the manhunt and scandalous trial of Robert Garrow. This case takes us up and through the Adirondack Mountains, a region that spans over 6 million acres. The southern portion of the mountain range borders New York, while the northern portion borders Canada. The perimeter of the Adirondacks is 31,200 miles. For perspective, it would take a person walking eight hours a day without a break almost three years to circle the entire area. A force of nature and a sight to behold, the Adirondack Mountains attract millions of tourists and locals alike. The area offers countless nature activities like hiking, fishing, canoeing, and mountain biking. By far, one of the most popular activities in the Adirondacks is camping. It is in this wild and natural location where the monstrosity of one human being cast a very dark cloud over these beautiful mountains for years to come. In July of 1973, a group of teenage friends decided to take a camping trip in the Adirondacks. Phil Dombluski, Carol Ann Melanowski, David Freeman, and Nick Fiorello drove from their hometown of Schenectady, New York, to a location in the mountains not far from Wells, New York, about an hour drive away. The group hiked to their location and set up camp for the next few nights. These friends were no strangers to the Adirondacks. In fact, they frequently drove up to fish, hike, and camp throughout their adolescence. Their camping spot was close to Route 8, just south of the town of Speculator. With no hesitation, the friends began their normal activities, and late that night, as their fire began to dwindle, the four of them resigned to their tents, looking forward to another day in their favorite spot. 
Early on the morning of July 29th, the four friends were still sleeping soundly when a man driving an orange VW hatchback pulled off of the road close to the campsite. Carol Ann and David were dating at the time and were sleeping together in the tent that was closest to the road. Suddenly, Carol Ann heard the tent door zipping open, and then a man appeared in the doorway. The man ordered Carol Ann and David to get dressed, which they did quickly. By the way he was dressed, the couple assumed the man they encountered was a park ranger or warden of some type and that they had better do what he said. By the time Carol Ann and David exited the tent, they saw their two friends, Phil and Nick, standing outside as well. Confused and still under the haze of sleep, one of the friends asked what was happening. The man explained that he had run out of gas and oil and that he would be siphoning off some from their car which was parked next to the campsite. Phil resisted, and this angered the man who was holding a rifle the entire time, something they became even more aware of after Phil objected to the man taking their gas. The stranger pointed his weapon in the direction of the group and told them calmly, I've killed before, and I will again if I have to. At this point, the man ordered the four teens to walk deeper into the woods. They walked at gunpoint. The man then instructed Carol Ann to begin tying up her friends to trees. They were instructed to be tied up facing away from each other so they wouldn't be able to see one another or the man. After tying everyone up, the man walked Carol Ann to a tree further away and tied her up himself. She recalled that he was a large-statured man, much bigger than anyone in their group. He seemed to be almost six feet tall and over 200 pounds. She listened as he walked away from her, unsure of what to do. Carol Ann, David, and Nick attempted to reason with their captor, telling him that he could take whatever he wanted as long as he let them live. They said they wouldn't even report it to the authorities if he just let them go. Phil, however, was not ready to back down. He promised the man that he wouldn't get away with anything. With their hands tied behind them around trunks of trees and facing away from everyone else, the four teens listened intently, trying to find out what the man was doing. They heard him put down his rifle, which they hoped was a good sign. Then, the teens heard footsteps and Phil quickly realized they were approaching him. He began reasoning with the stranger again, more lenient this time. Carol Ann, David, and Nick listened as the man walked toward their friend, having no idea what he was about to do. Suddenly, they heard a struggle, and what sounded like punches, followed by sounds of Phil gasping for breath and gurgling noises, as though he was underwater. Carol Ann screamed and asked what the man was doing. He responded saying he would be done in a minute. Then, David and Nick broke free from their ties and sprinted in different directions for help. This left Phil and Carol Ann alone with the strange man. As Phil continued gasping for air, the man untied Carol Ann and brought her back to the campsite. She caught a glimpse of Phil's body slumped up against the tree he was tied to, covered in his own blood. 
The man began gathering things together from the campsite. He made Carol Ann lie down in a nearby ditch. As the stranger was gathering supplies, he heard men running back towards the campground. When the approaching crowd arrived at the scene, the man had already filled up his gas tank, stolen all of the supplies from their campsite, and drove off in his orange VW hatchback. The group of men that had come back with David and Nick began looking around for signs of the man they had encountered, and more importantly, for Phil, whom they found fairly quickly. Horrified, the men saw Phil slumped over and covered in blood. He was dead by the time they arrived. Multiple stab wounds were visible on his chest. Authorities were alerted and a manhunt began. This manhunt would last over 11 days and cover hundreds of miles in the Adirondacks. It would turn out to be the longest and most intense manhunt in New York history. Immediately after Phil Dombluski's murder was reported, an alert was sent out to all who may be in the Adirondack Mountains close to where the incident had taken place. After hearing the news, hundreds of campers, hikers, and bikers exited the woods, leaving full campsites behind, stocked with food, clothing, and other necessities. For the first couple of days, authorities didn't find much. There were a couple of prior convicts from nearby towns who were considered potential suspects, but nothing substantial was found to tie any of them to the crime. On the evening of July 31st, two days after Phil's murder, authorities received a tip. A car matching the description given by Carol Ann, Nick, and David was spotted driving along the isolated dirt roads. Immediately, authorities began chasing this lead and eventually, they caught up to the orange VW hatchback. And when they did, a high-speed car chase ensued. The chase was made more difficult by the dense forest and shrubbery lining the thin and rocky roads. Eventually, however, the orange VW crashed and slammed to a halt. The man who'd been driving leaped out of the car and began fleeing on foot. The two state troopers who had managed to keep up with the car jumped out and raced after their suspect. The man bobbed and weaved with relative ease through the thick underbrush and leaves. The state troopers, weighed down by their heavy uniforms and gear, quickly lost sight of their suspect in the dark woods. Defeated, and knowing they wouldn't be able to recover any tracks or evidence during the nighttime, the troopers returned to their car to mark the location they had last seen the suspect. When they returned to the marked site, the troopers realized they had one key piece of evidence that could potentially give a name to the man they had been chasing for days. They had his car. After running the plates on the car, a man's name came up. The car belonged to Robert Garrow, and he'd been seen in the area numerous times. This was a huge break in the case. Do you often look over your shoulder to check for bad guys or look in the backseat of your car as soon as you get inside? I am always checking my surroundings for creepers and now I have something to fight back with. I take my Pepperball personal safety launcher with me everywhere. 
Pepperball makes non-lethal personal safety products of different sizes that are used by law enforcement, the military, homeland defense, and more. They are the real deal. Pepperball safety products launch a non-lethal dust cloud from a safe distance. The irritating dust cloud will quickly incapacitate any threat for about 15 minutes so you can get to safety. My teenage daughter went on a hike recently and took Pepperball's mobile launcher with her for protection. The mobile launcher holds three rounds, has an easy-to-use large trigger, dual LED flashlight, and an aiming laser to ensure accuracy for hitting your target. For the last few weeks, I've gone to bed with Pepperball's LifeLight launcher right next to me. It holds five rounds and also has an LED flashlight and an aiming laser which makes it so much easier to hit a target in the dark. For anyone who isn't really into guns but still wants to be protected, Pepperball's products are a perfect fit, and they look nothing like a gun, so you can feel safe taking them anywhere. I have total peace of mind knowing that my daughter, my husband, and I have Pepperball launchers with us at all times, and you cannot put a price tag on that feeling. For effective and easy-to-use personal safety products, visit pblifelight.com and enter code MURDERISH10 for a 10% discount in the new year. That's pblifelight.com and enter code MURDERISH10 for 10% off in the new year. I'm wondering if somebody can do a wellness check on my brother and his family. Weeks after they'd gone missing, Megan Tote, her three children, and their family's dog were found dead in a bedroom in their Florida home. From the porch, he looks directly at me. And I walked back out and said, Tony, where is Zoe? I'm Stent Spinella. And I'm Taylor Hart. We've spent almost a year trying to piece together how a seemingly perfect family from small town New England became the subject of a grisly tabloid murder case. He loved Megan. He loved the kids. He loved his life. Tony Tote was once class president, most likely to succeed, a respected physical therapist, and a devoted family man. Now, he's in custody, awaiting trial. Looking for the Tote family, a new podcast from the day, digs for answers beyond the national headlines to tell this family's tragic story. What happened? Like, where where did things go so wrong? Subscribe to Looking for the Tote Family wherever you get your podcasts. Robert Francis Garrow was born on March 4, 1936, to parents Robert Omer Garrow and Margaret Garrow. He had five siblings, four brothers, and one sister. One of his younger brothers died at a very young age. The Garrow family lived together on a farm in Dannemora, a village in upstate New York. Robert's father was a mine worker during the day and a heavy drinker at night. His mother was well known in town for her quick temper. Standing at only five foot one and weighing over 270 pounds, Robert's mother was someone most people would not cross. Both of Robert's parents were incredibly vicious, especially towards him. When drunk or angered, they would beat him with whatever was closest, their hand, a belt, a crowbar, or even a brick. The Garrow children were expected to work on the farm as well as attend school. Because school took up most of the day, Robert and his siblings had to wake up before sunrise and work until school began. After school, the Garrow children would continue to work until they could work no more, at which time they went to bed. 
they'd only get a few hours of rest before having to wake up and do it all over again. Robert's sister, Agnes, remembered her mother as an extremely cruel person who regularly beat and abused her children in almost every way imaginable. Eventually, Robert was pulled out of school at age seven to work on his neighbor's farm. Any money he made went directly to his parents as payment for their raising him. Robert worked on that farm from the age of seven until he was 15 years old. Some of the beatings he endured led to him passing out from pain or head trauma. With no friends or social interaction and no family with whom to interact, Robert was a very lonely young boy. Eventually, this isolation led to unnatural perversions. By his teenage years, Robert was in charge of livestock at the farm where he worked. Alone and without proper socialization, Robert began having sexual relations with the animals he tended. It is believed that this practice may have started as early as 10 years old. His sexual perversions continued for years, and he was never caught. At age 15, Robert began fighting back against his alcoholic father, who was still trying to beat him. One night, he punched his father in the face. After being taken away from his family, Robert was sent to Rochester State Industrial Reform School, where he spent one year. After being released, Robert joined the Air Force. During his time in the Air Force, Robert struggled. He had a habit of wetting his bed, which garnered a lot of mockery from his peers. After only six months in the Air Force, it was discovered that Robert had been stealing from his sergeant. He was immediately court-martialed and sent to Florida to serve a six-month term in a military prison. During this time, Robert escaped from prison, but was quickly apprehended, at which time he was sentenced to another year. By the time he was released, Robert had been in the Air Force for almost two years, most of which had been spent in prison. He was dishonorably discharged from his service. After being discharged, Robert moved back to New York, where he met and married a young girl named Edith. The pair were married in June of 1957 and lived in Lowellville, located in the Adirondacks. Robert struggled to keep a steady job, and the pair were frequently in tight financial situations. Eventually, after being let go from several jobs in their small community, the couple moved to Albany, where Robert worked as a fast food employee. Though able to keep this job for longer than most, he was eventually fired from that job too. This time, however, Robert was let go because he burglarized the store at which he was working. Although he was fired, Robert never faced charges for that crime. In 1961, things escalated. When he was 25 years old, Robert attacked a teenage couple with a pellet gun. He held the couple at what they thought was gunpoint before knocking out the male with the butt end of the pellet gun. After her boyfriend was unconscious, Robert raped the young girl, still pointing the fake gun at her head. Afterward, he took off, leaving the young couple traumatized. The crime was immediately reported to police, who began searching for Robert. Eventually, they caught up to and arrested him. 
he was handed down a sentence of 10 to 20 years in prison for assault and rape. Then he was sent to Clinton State Prison, a prison that held some of New York's worst inmates. Robert Garrow only served eight years and was let out early on account of good behavior. For a few years, the convicted man was able to lead a semi-normal life. He worked in a bakery and managed to keep to himself for the most part. It is unknown whether Robert committed any crimes during this time. In 1972, however, he ambushed two unsuspecting college girls, held them captive, and kept them tied up. Fortunately, the girls managed to escape. The details of this crime are unknown because the victims decided not to press charges against Robert. The following year, in 1973, the sexual predator was again accused of sexual assault, this time against two young girls in Gettys, New York. Garrow was incarcerated following that crime, but was later released on bail to await his court date. When his court date arrived, however, Robert was nowhere to be seen. He had jumped bail. An arrest warrant was issued and Robert Garrow had officially become a fugitive of the law. During the time he was on the run, law enforcement worried that he may be spiraling and his lewd behavior could be escalating. As it turned out, they were not wrong. The next time law enforcement would come face to face with Robert was after he brutally murdered Phil Dombluski. During the 11-day search for Garrow, random sightings of him were reported, but turned out to be dead ends. Authorities would, however, receive a tip from a young boy that proved helpful. Jim Tracy, who was only eight years old at the time of the manhunt, had been camping in the Adirondacks with his family. The Tracys were one of only a few families who dared to camp in an area where a murderer might be on the loose. Jim Tracy clearly remembered the day of August 5, 1973. Early that day, when he left the cabin in which he and his family were staying, his father locked the door. When they returned to the cabin that evening, they were shocked to see that the window above the door was wide open. Jim's father went inside the cabin alone to make sure no one was in there. The rest of the family filed in afterward taking in the aftermath of the scene. The cabin was ransacked. The family realized at some point that fugitive Robert Garrow had been there. The most haunting image that Jim recalled was the seemingly giant footprint Garrow had left behind on their kitchen table, which he had climbed on to get in and out of the cabin. Most families had abandoned the Adirondacks for the duration of the manhunt. Because of their hurry to get away, many camping supplies were left behind. Food, water, soda, clothes, and other needed supplies were conveniently located throughout the woods. This is what Robert Garrow was able to live off of for so long. When food wasn't readily available, Robert resorted to eating snakes. Because he'd grown up near the woods, the fugitive was able to live off the grid with minimal supplies. Authorities received daily calls from people reporting sightings of the fugitive, although most ended up being Robert Garrow lookalikes. 
There were a few calls, however, that helped identify a particular area of the woods where Robert had been spending time. Despite initially thinking that he had gone deep into the woods, it was later learned that Robert had been walking in the lighter brush just off of the road, ensuring he knew where he was going. Many different tactics were used to try to get the wanted man to surrender. At one point, authorities recorded audio of Edith Garrow and Robert Garrow Jr., Robert's wife and son. Their messages were played from giant loudspeakers sitting on helicopters. As the helicopters circled the woods, Edith and Robert Jr.'s voices could be heard for miles, begging Robert to surrender and come home. Robert Jr. cried as he said to his father through the recording that he didn't want him to get hurt, he just wanted him to give up so that his father wouldn't be harmed. Edith pleaded for her husband to do the right thing. These creative efforts to lure Robert in went completely ignored by him. Authorities also used bloodhounds attempting to trace Robert's scent. Garrow was nimble in the woods. He had long used the woods to escape from the torture of his youth, making him accustomed to the thick briar, the tangled underbrush, and the dense trees. He took paths that would intentionally confuse scent animals, crossing back over previous paths, and walking in and out through streams was more than enough to keep the hounds from finding him easily. The day after 8-year-old Jim Tracy and his family reported their encounter with Robert Garrow, another brush with the fugitive occurred. Summer camp was still going on for some boys at a Christian camp called Deerfoot Lodge near Whitaker Lake. On Monday, August 6th, as the camp was carrying out usual activities, Robert Garrow stole a 1968 Pontiac Tempest, which he drove down the nearest highway. Once on the highway, Robert encountered a roadblock, which was manned by a state trooper. Knowing he'd be caught if he stopped at the roadblock, Garrow revved his engine and sped towards the state trooper, plowing through the roadblock. He continued speeding up along Route 30, the trooper now in his vehicle and catching up quick. The state trooper called for backup, alerting nearby authorities that he was possibly in pursuit of Robert Garrow. The state trooper tailed Robert getting closer and closer, but it wasn't going to be the trooper's day. His car gave out and died in the middle of Route 30, and the nimble criminal escaped capture once again. On August 7th, another lead came in. Authorities got word that Robert had gone to visit his sister, who lived in Mineville, the place where they had grown up. Authorities swarmed the home, but no luck. Robert was already gone. Robert's sister said he wouldn't tell her where he was going next, but she did mention an injury on his right hand. She said that he was bleeding and that her brother told her he had an altercation and that a guy ended up being stabbed, during which time he had injured himself. Robert's sister had no idea at the time that her brother had stabbed a man to death with his bare hands, resulting in the injury she saw when he visited her. Without much information on Garrow's next steps, authorities continued searching, 
leaving some officers watching his sister's house at all times, just in case he came back for more supplies. While staking out his sister's house, on August 10th, 11 days after Phil's murder, one officer saw Robert's nephew sneaking out of his house into the woods while carrying a suspicious amount of food. Authorities followed closely behind, unnoticed by Garrow's nephew. After a while, Robert emerged from his hiding spot to meet his nephew, at which point the officers following yelled for the wanted man to put up his hands and drop his weapon, a 30 caliber Winchester rifle. Robert Garrow immediately began running back into the deep woods. Officers opened fire on him and eventually, Robert fell to the ground, wounded. As the officers approached, they noticed bullet wounds in Robert's back, leg, and left hand. The fugitive continued to struggle with officers as they put him in handcuffs. After 11 days, Garrow was finally in custody and facing charges for the murder of Philip Dombluski. However, over the course of time, authorities began believing that Phil may have been Robert's last murder victim, but not his only murder victim. The internet is where many of us are doing most of our shopping and other tasks. With Stamps.com, I can now go to the post office without actually going to the post office. I've been printing postage from my home printer and shipping packages to murderish supporters without leaving the house. While I love all of the time my Stamps.com account saves me, I also love that it saves me money. I get five cents off of every first class stamp, up to 40% off priority mail, and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. In case you didn't catch that, I can ship packages, print U.S. postage, and save money on all of it while sitting in front of the tube in my jammies, binging my favorite true crime documentaries. Stamps.com is perfect for business owners and online sellers. I totally get why over 900,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. So make 2021 the year you stop wasting time going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There is no risk. And with my promo code MURDERISH, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MURDERISH. That's stamps.com, promo code MURDERISH, stamps.com, never go to the post office again. There are so many things we can do from home. With Plush Care, meeting with your doctor is now one of them. With Plush Care, you can schedule an appointment with a doctor online without having to sit on hold or leave the house. Just choose a convenient time and then meet with a doctor on your smartphone or computer. During your virtual visit, you can get medical issues diagnosed, receive treatment, and have a prescription sent to a pharmacy of your choice. Most major insurance carriers are accepted by Plush Care, and there's availability in all 50 states. Let's face it, many of us are struggling with our mental health these days. Plush Care has doctors who care, 
and they're ready right now to help you through your difficulties. I dread doctor visits. Just something about waiting in a crowded waiting room makes the experience so much less pleasant. Now, I can meet with great doctors right from the comfort of my own home. Health should always come first, and Plush Care has been so great in keeping my health on track because it's so convenient and a much more pleasant experience. Plush Care makes it easier than ever to take care of yourself inside and out. Start your membership today. Go to plushcare.com slash murderish to start your free 30-day trial. That's P-L-U-S-H-C-A-R-E dot com slash murderish for a free 30-day trial. Plushcare.com slash murderish. In the summer of 1974, almost a year after his capture, Robert Garrow's murder trial began. He was represented by Frank H. Armani, who had previously represented Garrow in a case involving a car accident and one for minor theft, had no previous experience with murder trials. When Robert asked that Armani represent him, the attorney initially declined. However, the court demanded that Robert be properly represented, and eventually, Armani agreed. To make up for his lack of murder trial experience, Armani requested assistance from his acquaintance, Francis Belge, an experienced criminal defense lawyer. Belge also initially resisted defending Garrow, claiming that it was a lost cause and that no one could get him acquitted. Armani confided in Belge that he was not trying to get Garrow acquitted. He was simply trying to get him a lighter sentence based on insanity. And with that, Belge finally agreed to come on board. The two attorneys didn't know at the time the lifelong impact this case would have on their careers. With Judge George Marthen presiding, Garrow's trial began in June of 1974. At the time, Garrow was wheelchair-bound. According to the defendant, the shots authorities fired at him had left him paralyzed from the waist down. Despite Robert's claims, medical professionals reported that he was not paralyzed. Even so, Robert insisted that he be moved in a wheelchair for the duration of the trial. As he promised, Armani entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, stating that the obvious ramp-up in violence was due to a mental snap which led to his client's rampage. The prosecution, led by William Intiman, worked to dispel the notion that Garrow was mentally unstable. They did this by outlining his past crimes, his deliberate actions in the murder of Phil Dombluski, and his meticulousness while evading arrest, all of which, according to the prosecution, pointed to the fact that Robert Garrow had full knowledge and understanding that his actions were unlawful and immoral. Intamin called many witnesses to the stand, most notably Carol Ann Malinowski Freeman. By the time the trial took place, Carol Ann had married David Freeman, another witness to Phil Dombluski's murder. Carol Ann recounted for the jury the morning that Robert attacked them at their campsite. She was able to positively identify Garrow as the man who had broken into their tents, ordered them into the woods, tied them to trees, and murdered their friend, Phil. 
Robert's defense attempted to convince the jury that his client was unable to prevent himself from committing his crimes and could not understand the meaning of his crimes. In order to help prove this, Armani allowed Robert Garrow to take the stand. The accused murderer's testimony would send shockwaves through the courtroom and the nation. At the beginning of his testimony, Robert was asked to explain his upbringing to the jury. He went on at length describing his dysfunctional childhood. He recounted the extreme abuse and exploitation he experienced from his parents, his lack of proper education and normal socialization, and he even told the jury about his acts of bestiality with animals of all kinds on the farm where he previously worked. Robert's recounting of his childhood shocked and disgusted the jury. However, it was not his childhood that would leave the biggest imprint. To everyone's surprise, Robert admitted that he had killed Phil Domblewski. Though he had a tendency to distance himself from the act of murder, Robert did acknowledge his role in Phil's death. And then, while still on the witness stand, Robert began confessing to more murders, murders he had committed before Phil Domblewski's. In front of a stunned courtroom, Garrow began confessing to murders that were not even legally connected to the case for which he was on trial. Robert told the jury that he had killed Alicia Hawk of Syracuse before leaving for the Adirondacks. Alicia Hawk was a 16-year-old girl attending summer school in July of 1973. According to Garrow, he saw her leaving the school, began talking to her, then coerced her to follow him, where he eventually tied her up, repeatedly raped her, and then murdered her. Her body stayed hidden for months before it was finally found. Until her body was found, Alicia was considered missing and possibly alive, and Robert wasn't done confessing. He spoke about coming into contact with Donald Porter, a student at Harvard, and 20-year-old Susan Petz from Skokie, Illinois. Donald and Susan had been hiking and camping in the Adirondacks. Donald's body was later found near Weavertown, not long after he went missing, but Susan could not be located. Her body was found later in the air shaft of a mine by children playing in the area. Though Donald's body had been found quickly, there had not been enough evidence to connect his murder to anyone. If Robert had not confessed during his trial, it's likely that Donald's murder would have remained unsolved. During these stunning confessions, it was reported that Robert Garrow was crying and stammering as he spoke. While the entire courtroom was astonished by the defendant's confessions, his defense team were not. In fact, Robert's defenders had one more surprise for the court. During direct exam, Francis Belge asked his client about the two girls he claimed to have murdered. And then, as reported by Radiolab's buried body cases, Belge asked his client, are those the bodies we found? This news that Francis Belge and Frank Armani knew where the two girls were shook the nation. For months, investigators, volunteers, and family members had been searching for the bodies of their missing loved ones, 
All the while, Robert's defense team knew exactly where they were and even had pictures of the bodies. This was a giant scandal, one that extended back to the time period right after Robert Garrow was captured. At that time, he confessed his crimes, the murder of Alicia Hawk, Donald Porter, and Susan Petz to his attorneys, and even told them where the bodies of the two girls were hidden. Robert claimed that Susan Petz's body was hidden in an air shaft in one of the mines located in the Adirondacks. He went so far as to draw a map to where her body could be found. He also told his defense attorneys that Alicia Hawk was buried somewhere near Syracuse University. In order to corroborate his story, Armani and Belge decided to follow Robert's directions to the bodies to confirm whether they were truly there. Because the map to Susan Petz's body was much more definite, they began looking for her first. Armani and Belge spent the afternoon hiking up to the mines that Robert had described to them. They spent hours searching through different mine shafts, hoping to see if Susan's body was there. Close to twilight, right around sundown, Belge caught sight of something that looked out of place. Though he could make out what seemed to be a foot, he couldn't be certain. Armani lowered Belge down the shaft to get a better look. When Belge reached the bottom, he realized he was staring at the decomposing body of Susan Petz, laying out exactly how Robert had described. Belge took pictures of Susan, and then took pictures of the surroundings so they could find their way back if needed. Though they knew where the body was, the attorneys told no one. The two attorneys then set out to search for Alicia Hawk. Robert did not provide exact details regarding where she was buried. He only gave an estimate of where she might be. He knew he was near Syracuse University when he buried her, so he assumed she was somewhere around that area. Armani and Belge spent days trying to locate Alicia's body, and eventually, they found her, partially buried in a graveyard on Syracuse University's campus. Again, Armani and Belge took pictures of her body and the surroundings, but they told no one of their discovery. Belge later recalled that holding on to this information caused many sleepless nights, but because of attorney client privilege, they were bound to stay silent about it. Belge said that the hardest point to keep that secret was when he came face to face with Susan Petz's father in his office. Belge knew that Mr. Petz was desperate to find his daughter. Belge, however, was bound to keep his client's secret. Upon learning that Robert's defense attorneys knew where the girls' bodies were, but said nothing, the courtroom buzzed with confusion, excitement, and outrage. For months, Robert's defense team had known the location of the girls' bodies. Though this news caused a major uproar, the trial for Phil Dombluski's murder had to continue. Belge and Armani announced that they would be holding a press conference the next morning to address the controversy. Questioning continued for Robert Garrow, who continued to recount his days on the run from police. He told the jury about his skills living off the land and his ability to evade law enforcement. He also told them of his capture. 
In a state of grief, Robert told jurors that law enforcement had maliciously harmed him in their pursuit to the point of paralyzing him, though this claim was not supported by doctors. In response to Robert's shocking testimony, the prosecution assured the jury that there is no way that Garrow was not guilty by reason of insanity. They reminded jurors of the meticulousness of his murders and his escape, along with the newly introduced string of killings, which assured that Robert was fully aware of the implications of his crimes. Lead prosecutor Intamin also called to the stand three different psychiatrists and one psychologist to substantiate Robert's sanity during the time of his crimes. Each of the four professionals held the belief that the defendant was fully sane before, during, and after he committed his crimes and evaded law enforcement. In closing statements, defense attorney Francis Belge pleaded with the jury to see Robert Garrow as a broken man, someone who had such a poor start in life there was no way he could live normally. Belge claimed that the people sitting in the courtroom gallery behind Robert should be his parents, the people who destined him for a ruined life. The prosecution closed with a guarantee that Garrow was sane and knew the impact and implications of his crimes. They referred back to the four professionals who could attest to this and pointed out the methodical nature of Robert's crimes showing that he was in fact sane. Robert already admitted to his crimes. The only thing left was to find him guilty, the prosecution argued. On June 27, 1974, almost a year after Garrow began his rampage through the Adirondacks, the jury, composed of five women and seven men, was sent to deliberate. That Thursday afternoon, the jury spent only two hours discussing the trial. Throughout their time deliberating, the jury only had one piece of evidence reread to them, Carol Ann's testimony. Once that was finished, the jury were ready to give their verdict. As the jury re-entered, the court waited silently. Robert Garrow sat with his head down, still in the wheelchair he had requested. His right hand was handcuffed to the armrest of the wheelchair. Both the defense and the prosecution teams sat impatiently behind their desks. As the court came to order, the clerk asked Alice Ohl, the jury foreperson, if the jury had reached a verdict. She responded that they had. The clerk then asked for the verdict. Ohl replied, guilty of murder. The courtroom erupted. Robert Garrow's manhunt had been the largest news event in Adirondack history and the nation was watching to see what would become of him. The families impacted by his horrendous crimes were relieved, and the prosecution team was ecstatic. Robert sat motionless and silent as the room around him filled with noise. He sat silently as he was wheeled off to await sentencing. Belge and Armani immediately promised that they would appeal the case and that their client deserved justice. Mordu and Intamin from the prosecution assured everyone that they would seek to press charges in the following weeks for the murders of Susan Petz, Donald Porter, and Alicia Hawk. Four days later, on July 1, 1974, 
Robert Garrow was brought back before the judge for sentencing. Armani and Belge asked for the minimum sentence of 15 years to life with the possibility of parole. Intamin and Mordu asked for the maximum sentence of 25 years to life. Before sentencing, Judge Marthen asked if Garrow had anything he wanted to say. The Post Star newspaper reported that in a voice just above a whisper, Robert responded, No, just, I'm sorry. Judge Marthen gave Garrow the maximum sentence for his crimes, 25 years to life. As promised, the prosecution team quickly began working to build cases for the other people Garrow confessed to killing. Unfortunately, these murder cases would never make it to trial. Garrow was sent to Clinton Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison located in Dannemora, New York, to serve out his sentence. He arrived there the day after his sentencing hearing, and during this time, he still claimed to be paralyzed from the injuries he sustained during his capture. Because of this, Garrow often requested to transfer to the elderly and handicapped unit at Fishkill Correctional Facility, a minimum security prison. This request was repeatedly denied, and it was reported by many medical professionals that Robert was not in fact paralyzed from his injuries. For years, the inmate attempted to move from Clinton to Fishkill, and in 1977, his request to move was finally entertained. That year, Garrow had received a death threat from another inmate, which prompted a move to Auburn Correctional Facility, another maximum security prison. Robert continued complaining about his injuries and his lack of medical care. At one point, he filed a $10 million lawsuit against the state, demanding that he be given appropriate care and that he be moved to Fishkill's elderly and handicapped unit. The lawsuit ended with the court allowing Garrow to be seen by his own doctor. All of his doctors made similar comments about his injuries and alleged paralysis. They agreed that his paralysis was subjective and not a natural byproduct of the injuries he sustained. Nevertheless, Robert continued insisting that he was paralyzed and needed to be moved to Fishkill. The following year, in 1978, Garrow finally got his wish. He was transferred to Fishkill's elderly and handicapped unit, a minimum security prison that catered to older or permanently injured inmates. Fishkill was known for its lack of security. In fact, over three dozen inmates had escaped from the prison in the previous five years. It should have come as no surprise when their most notorious inmate vanished from their capture on September 8, 1978. Robert Garrow had escaped. Early in the afternoon of September 8, Garrow's son, Robert Jr., visited his father in prison, bringing him a bucket of fried chicken to eat together. It was later learned that Robert Jr. had a 38 caliber automatic handgun stashed at the bottom of that bucket of chicken, which he handed off to his father before leaving. Later that evening, Garrow fashioned a makeshift dummy and put it in his bed under the covers in order to look like he was sleeping. After hiding the dummy, 
Robert stood up from his wheelchair and walked from his open cell to the front door of the ward, where he was able to exit the building without even being questioned. Garrow, still holding on to his thirty-eight caliber gun, was able to scale the chain-link fence and drop down to the ground, escaping from Fishkill. Garrow's disappearance was not noticed until the next morning, September 9, 1978. Immediately, a second manhunt for the convicted murderer began. As news spread of his escape, nearby towns and cities devolved into a panic. Parents kept their children home from school, refused to let them play outside, and sat in front of their doors at night, shotguns loaded. Robert Garrow's name was infamous. Everyone knew what he was capable of, but nobody knew where he was. Investigators searched in mass for Robert, canvassing the nearby woods, walking up and down Highway 84, which passed just in front of Fishkill. They even headed back to the Adirondacks in case he had returned to his killing field. Days passed and no one had caught even the slightest glimpse of Garrow. Authorities began fearing the worst that Robert was out for good, and he might have a vengeance. With Highway 84 directly in front of the prison, investigators believe that Robert Garrow could have been halfway across the country. Despite this, investigators continued looking around the areas close to the prison, knowing that Robert preferred to be in places in which he was familiar. This theory proved to be true, on the evening of September 11, 1978, Officer Dominic Arena was searching through the fields along the edges of the woods beside Fishkill. According to Arena, he heard a noise close by his side. Though it frightened him, Arena told himself that it was just an animal, and he continued searching for signs of the escaped inmate. Suddenly, Robert Garrow appeared directly in front of the officer. The fugitive emerged from an area that Officer Arena had apparently walked directly over, frightening Garrow enough to try and run again. Garrow fired his gun in Officer Arena's direction, hitting him in the leg. Arena fell to the ground but managed to call for backup. Immediately, officers nearby saw the escaped prisoner running into the woods. They opened fire on Garrow, who quickly fell to the ground. Officers warily approached the fallen prisoner, but realized quickly that Robert Garrow was dead. Three gunshot wounds had punctured his heart and lungs. Garrow's death ended the investigations into the deaths of Susan Petz, Donald Porter, and Alicia Hawk. His confessions gave enough detail to confirm that he was, in fact, their killer. Unfortunately for their families, he didn't live to be formally charged and sentenced for these crimes. They were, however, able to recover the bodies of their loved ones and give them proper funerals. Frank Armani and Francis Belge suffered greatly after representing Garrow at his murder trial. Immediately following Robert's sentencing, Belge and Armani were investigated by the State Bar Association to determine whether their behavior and handling of Garrow's case was professional and ethical. 
Armani and Belge believed that it was their duty as representatives of their client to keep what he told them a secret unless otherwise instructed by Garrow. Attorney-client privilege, they claimed, prevented them from alerting police, even anonymously, of the bodies they had discovered. According to the attorneys, if they had told anyone, they would be violating their attorney-client privilege. They claimed this could have inadvertently added more charges to Garrow's sentence, something that could alter the idea of attorney-client privilege for years to come. Though there was a loud majority who were downright outraged at Armani and Belge's actions, there were others who agreed with how they handled the situation. Ultimately, the two attorneys were determined to have acted in sound ethical action and were not disbarred or reprimanded in any other way. The only consequence was for Belge, who was charged with a health code violation for haphazardly burying a body without proper preparation. Apparently, when finding Alicia Hawk's body, Belge had recovered areas that had come unburied. Though this was an odd charge, the court saw it as the only feasible punishment. Other than the one charge against Belge, everything else was dismissed. On the day that Belge was charged, Armani suffered a non-fatal heart attack. Despite being exonerated of any legal wrongdoing, Belge and Armani were still heavily ostracized. Both of them had clients who dropped them. Colleagues ignored them. Their law firms nearly collapsed, and they began receiving death threats from the public. Both men began arming themselves in public out of fear of someone acting on the threats. Frank Armani's wife reported that he even began sleeping with a loaded shotgun at their bedside. Francis Belge eventually shut down his law practice in New York and moved to South Florida. Frank Armani, determined not to let Robert Garrow destroy him, stuck it out in New York, where he was eventually able to keep his law practice from going under. In modern law, this case is discussed frequently as it begs the question, where does the obligation to your client end, and where does the obligation to your morals begin? In other words, is there anything that a client could tell his or her attorney that is covered under attorney-client privilege that should be communicated to authorities? Is there ever an instance where breaking this privilege is appropriate? These are the questions that Armani and Belge struggled with during the year they worked with Robert Garrow, and these are the questions that law scholars debate without resolution. When asked if he would change how he handled the case, Armani maintains that he would not change anything he did. Frank Armani retired in 2006 after a 50-year career in law. Francis Belge died in 1989 at the age of 63 in Lake Worth, Florida. In the years following Robert Garrow's capture, many unsolved murders have been unofficially attributed to him. Most are murders of young women from the areas he frequented. Two such unsolved murder cases involve Ruth Whitman and Carol Segretta. Many investigators strongly believe that Robert is responsible for many more murders than he confessed to on the witness stand. In total, over 27 murders are potentially linked to Garrow and many more rapes. 
though no confirmation of this can be reached. It took a while, but in time, the communities affected by Garrow's crimes returned to normal life. Eventually, the Adirondacks were repopulated with campers, hikers, and adventure seekers who had never even heard of the serial murderer and sexual predator who cast a dark aura over the area. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you'd like to hear sources for this episode, stick around after the closing music. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merchandise like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you just can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers, like the recent episode where I talk about the time I came home to find two strangers in my house. You can sign up for Patreon at Murderish.com, where there's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Thank you to Porter K, who increased his pledge recently, Nicole M, Debbie T, Jeanette M, and Jessica M. You guys are so awesome, and I appreciate your support so much. I want to connect with you guys, Follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast and on Twitter at Murderish Pod. Or you can join the Murderish Facebook group. We have so much fun in there. Don't forget to tell a friend about Murderish and write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Lincoln Edgeman. As always, Ishers. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include an article in the Post Star dated June 28, 1974 by Dan Amon, another article by Dan Amon in the Post Star dated July 31, 1973, an AP article in the Post Star dated July 2, 1974, an AP article in the New York Times dated June 20, 1974, a Murderpedia article at Murderpedia.org by Juan Ignacio Blanco, an article by Sarah Diodato in the Times Union dated October 18, 2018, an article by Mark Gato in the Crime Library dated July 16, 2003, an article at Adirondack.net dated October 1, 2020, an ABA Journal 2007 article by Mark Hansen at abajournal.com. A 2007 article found at scholarship.law.edu by Lisa G. Lerman et al. An article in the Denver Post dated June 24, 2013. An article in the Times Record dated August 3, 1973 by Bruce Scruton located at newspapers.com. A 2018 NALA.org article by Lisa M. Stone. An article dated June 3, 2016 at wnycstudios.org.